You're listening to Fighting Terror, the podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorist and extremist groups globally. Episode 4, European Approach to Counter-Terrorism. Hello and welcome. Today I'm joined by Gilles de Kirchhoff. Gilles is a well-respected senior official, having worked at the heart of Europe as the counterterrorism coordinator since 2007. In his role, he coordinates the work of the member states in the Council in combating terrorism. He routinely meets with the Council of Ministers and presents policy recommendations to help ensure the security of EU citizens through the prevention of radicalisation and the safeguarding of European values. Gilles often cooperates with international partners. Most recently, he addressed the 2020 UN Virtual Counterterrorism Week. You are very welcome, Gilles. We're delighted to have you participating in this Counter-Extremism Project podcast. Thank you for inviting me. We're delighted to be talking to you from Brussels. And unfortunately, counterterrorism is a constant theme in policy discussions in Brussels and around the EU member states and indeed beyond. I'd like to talk to you about the EU's counterterrorism strategy and the perspective of the counterterrorism coordinator. You've been in your position for well over a decade at this point, and a lot of work has been completed on the so-called war on terror. I'm interested to hear from you how your role specifically has developed over the last 10 years or so. I don't believe my job has changed. It's more the threat which has evolved and maybe the EU response which has improved significantly. My job remained, in a way, a bit the same, probably less coordinating than before, but still I see my job as someone who has to keep counterterrorism high on the agenda. Because as you said, it has ups and downs. And of course, there is a lot more momentum in the direct aftermath of a terrorist attack when they, it seems to be quiet and people tend to focus on something else. And so keep the subject high on the agenda would be one. The second is try to bring to the decision-making process in Brussels concern from the member states. Where do they need more Europe? What has changed is the level of involvement of our member states. They have a lot more appetite for more Europe than they had uh, 13 years ago when I started. Just one example, Europol is systematically involved in each and every ongoing investigation. Why in the past, some member states were reluctant to involve Europol in an ongoing investigation. No, they do. I think in 2019, Europol has supported more than 600 investigations in Europe which is a really significant change compared with the past. The same with Eurojust for judicial cooperation. And Frontex, another agency for border control, is a lot more involved in security than they were in the past. We have enriched the policy response. It's a very wide range of policies, starting from education, the soft policy, culture, up to coordination on returnees. Uh, three, the threat has evolved, of course. While probably 13 years ago, we were confronted with one major organization, uh, Al-Qaeda, structured like a multinational company, but with not a so impressive number of fighters. Now we have at least two, Daesh and Al-Qaeda, with a lot of franchises and affiliated groups. And we are in the thousands on both sides, despite the, the fall of the caliphate. And on top of it, we see the rise of new forms of violent extremism, 
on the right wing. Uh, we still have some uh, left wing. The role has not much changed. It's still about bringing the concern of the member states in the EU decision-making process around the table. But what has changed is, uh, no, I think the European Union is a real security partner in, in all this. I think it's very helpful for listeners to understand just how complex the threat has become and how diverse it is. I mean, all of these Islamist groups which have sprung up across Europe in different member states in the last several years, in addition to the threat of extreme left-wing and right-wing extremist groups and potential terrorist threat, which obviously makes your job a very busy one. You're seeing greater cooperation in the council has the jealous guarding of sovereignty in relation to security matters then become less important to member states as they see the need to work in a more cooperative way to tackle these threats? We still have theological debate as to whether the EU has competence in the field of intelligence, but much less than before. I think even the security services do agree that they need to be a lot more engaged in the decision-making process. If I take just one example... If Europol gets information on foreign terrorist fighters, for instance, from the Americans, and we got more than 2,000 names, biometrical data as well, of people detained by the Kurds or people who have been captured on a different battlefield. Let's suppose this information is shared with Europol. It's our collective interest to insert all this information in the Schengen information system, which is the, the most effective police database we have. The SIS, the Schengen information system, is fed both by security service and by law enforcement agencies. So we need to find a way to bring this data in the Schengen information system. Sometimes we have to check the names, so we need the security service on board. Sometimes we can do it through law enforcement channels. It is in everyone's interest that we work closer together. So I think it's much less acute than before. But nevertheless, uh, intelligence cooperation developed outside the EU framework in the CTG, the counterterrorism group, and not within the European Union as such, but it's less and less uh, antagonist in a way. Obviously, the United Kingdom is an important part of that intelligence sharing formula across Europe. Are you concerned about how that will work now that the UK has left the European institutions? Or do you believe that there can be continuity as the UK begins to pursue its own path outside of the EU? My standard reply is on the Intel side, I don't see much impact because, as I just said, mm. uh, intelligence cooperation develops outside the EU framework, inside the CTG, and the UK is full member and an active member of the CTG, so I don't see why it would have a direct impact. In terms of policy shaping, it will of course, because the Brits were among the most active and the most creative members of the European Union when it comes to designing the policy response and so on. The EU strategy of prevent, protect, pursue is based on the UK for peace. And a lot of ideas like the prevent strategy of the European Union have been shared by the UK. Of course, if you're not around the table, you don't influence in the same way. We have developed with the Americans a security transatlantic partnership. So I cannot believe that we will cooperate less with a country which is a former member state, which is geographically speaking close to the European Union than we are doing with the United States. Let's see how the Brexit negotiation will develop and let's see how we can build something creative and keep cooperating very closely together. Uh, it's a win-win situation. I think that's a positive perspective. And obviously, we all hope that those ongoing dialogues will, will be positive and engaged. And it's in the interest of both sides for that to be the case, I think. 
One theme that we have explored in the Counter Extremism Project in great detail, most recently in a publication which we've co-authored with the European Policy Centre, is that of returning foreign fighters. Our advisor, Ian Atchison, has worked a lot on this topic. We're interested to see that in the Commission's work programme for 2021, uh, there is a proposal for a regulation on returning competence. I'm curious to get your thoughts on the value from an intelligence point of view of managing and regulating uh, how we deal with returning competence in addition to minimizing the security threat. Is this something that you've looked at in great detail? We have been working on several aspects of the returnee phenomenon. The first one is, of course, on improving the way we spot possible returnees at the external border. This is, of course, a security big challenge. That means improving the way member states do feed the Schengen information system and do use it. It was a bit disappointing to see in a recent report of Frontex that 22% of those who are re-entering into the European Union are not checked systematically at the external border. So that's the first aspect of this issue. The second one is to ensure accountability. So when we have someone returning, it's of critical importance that we have all the necessary evidence to secure a conviction which is proportionate to the crime that they have committed. Very often, we don't have enough evidence. So the best that you can secure is a conviction for three, four, five years, depending on the member state, for participation in a terrorist organization, which is quite disappointing if you know, based on intelligence and not on evidence, that the person has raped, beheaded, killed people. So very worrying. We have been working hard on improving access to evidence. We have several projects, one in Iraq to digitalize and index all the evidence collected by the different players in Iraq. We had a long, long debate on access to battlefield information and how we can improve, especially in the context of the anti-Daesh coalition, access to this uh, evidence. Of course, what do we do to disengage returnees from uh, violence? We are not talking about de-radicalization because nobody believes that you can change someone's mindset. You can convince someone not to use violence to uh, push uh, his or her ideas. And it's very relevant for prison leavers. The last strand of work is the issue of those currently detained in northeast Syria. 600 children, 200 women and 200 men. What do we do with these people? You have the US, the UN and many other international actors pushing member states to repatriate their own citizens. They do repatriate on a case-by-case children, and the best they can achieve for the time being is orphans, because the Kurds are not letting the children get back home without the mother. But what I'm uh, pretty active is on the humanitarian aspect in the camps and in the prison, because the detention conditions are pretty dire in terms of health, access to food, Can we start doing some disengagement program already in the camp so that we avoid that they get even more radical over time, waiting for a decision, either a repatriation or a trial in the region? I'm trying to get more support from the different financing instruments, the FBI, ECO, humanitarian assistance, uh, more support for the IFCRC, the big international NGOs, so that we can improve the situation of the women and children as well as the situation in the prison. This cannot last forever. At some stage, maybe Assad will take over that part of Syria. He has regained control, legally speaking, of northeast Syria, 
but not effective control. You still have American troops and the Kurds doing the job. One day it may change. There might be riots in prison, especially if COVID enter into this prison. I think we need at some stage to have a solution, but it's in the hands of the member states and not the European Union. The best way I can do for the time being is to improve the detention condition, I think. Mm -hmm. One last point. I know people do criticize a lot the idea of trying these people in the region, but it's standard practice. It's good justice that if you can have a trial where the crime has been committed, because that's where the, the public disorder has taken place. That's where you have the victims, and most of the time that's where the, the evidence are located. So it really makes sense to have the trial in the region, provided that you can offer a fair trial, and that is a challenge indeed, and that we can support either Iraq or the Kurds to do this. The rate of prosecutions is so low, not just the fact that sentencing is very limited, but the success of prosecutions across the European Union. I mean, in some member states, it's less than 10%. The evidentiary burden is very high in Europe. And I can only assume that part of the reason is that much of the evidence is lost in bringing some of those being prosecuted back to European soil. But as you say, this is a multifaceted challenge, which international agencies, NGOs, multiple governments, not just EU member states, all need to resolve at some point. We have tried to convince member states to pursue a double track and start prosecuting returnees for terrorism, as well as for war crime. Some of the member states, they can do together and secure longer period of time in prison, which is quite smart. I, I, would, I would try to uh, promote that a lot more. I think in terms of member states stepping up, of course, we've seen France and Austria, both of which have experienced horrendous terrorist attacks in recent months, yet again on European soil. I think it's fair to say that President Emmanuel Macron has really stepped up his rhetoric, but also his policy response specifically relating to the threat of political Islam as a dangerous political ideology. And that is something that has been extremely sensitive in Europe. You've obviously been dealing with this for many years. Do you feel that we understand political Islam sufficiently in Europe that we, from a values or cultural perspective, know how to treat it? We sometimes feel that there is a conflation between Islam, the religion, and Islamism, the extreme and dangerous political ideology. Do we need to explain that and understand it better? We need to have more conversation on that, for sure. And it's, as you just suggested, pretty sensitive. We need to have a more informed conversation to avoid any conflation. And we know the drivers of radicalization is discussed among scholars. And if I take the French, very well-known scholars, they do diverge a lot. Gilles Kepel says, I look at the file of those who committed attack recently, the ideological dimension, radical Islam is a driver of their radicalization and have explained it. You have Olivier Roy, who says, no, no, that has nothing to do. They are completely Islam illiterate. It didn't play any role. They were smoking hashish. They were drinking beers. They were not practicing Muslim. This is not a driver. Maybe at the end of the process, when people are radicalized, this brand of Islam or this interpretation of Islam provide them with a sort of black and white explanation why they can use violence to promote their ideas. Then you have a third one, Roscoe Kavar, who says this is social, discrimination, Islamophobia, racism. This is an important driver. And then you have a fourth guy, François Berger, who says, no, no, that's geopolitics. 
It's because we have not solved the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's because there were too many U.S. boots on Arab territory. So it's geopolitics. I believe that there are many drivers and that the weight of the drivers depends from one person to another. We have to address each and every driver. So we need to work on marginalization, integration, discrimination. So it's not one or the other one. The second dimension, I think, which is equally important, it's probably not directly linked to counterterrorism, is an issue of cohesion in society. If you have a set of your society is diverging in terms of values because of this interpretation of their religion, it behaving a bit differently about gender equality or the right of minority groups, LGBT and so on. It creates tension in society, which feed far right, which may have an impact on your migration policy because people tend to say, yeah, we should stop migration because these are people who don't share our values and therefore Europe is not able anymore to develop a balanced policy in terms of migration, especially does not welcome asylum seekers anymore. And we need to keep welcoming and protecting people who need uh, international protection. That's very important. It's at the core of our value and it's an international obligation. And it may create tension in even violence. And I think th there was a sort of coincidence in the timing between the different terrorist attack in France and a speech that the French president wanted to deliver and had prepared for months, if not years, on what he called separatism, which was a lot more linked to cohesion. And finally, you don't want the religion in your country is too much influence from outside, neither from the Gulf through huge petrol dollars, which would help imposing one brand, uh, which is not the one that you have historically developed in your country, nor from the country from where most of your diaspora are coming from, Turkey, Morocco, and Nigeria in Europe. And so that's what I understand that the French are trying to address. How can we have Islam developing in France and be less dependent on external influence? It's a quite difficult issue because if you mix up, of course, you have a lot of tension. People tend to believe that we conflate one with the other, which is not the case. I'm myself very keen to, inside Europe, create the condition for more diversity in the interpretation of Islam. It is quite problematic that one brand, i.e. Salafism, Wahhabism, which has been in history the minor one, only became uh, dominant because it was supported by hundreds of millions of petrol dollars. Because in 1979, Saudi Arabia was afraid to lose the leadership in the Muslim world because of the Iranian revolution. So they start promoting proselytism worldwide in the Western Balkans, in the Sahel, in Europe. And I have nothing against Salafism. If people want to be Salafis, fine. The issue is it should not be dominant just because of this external factor. There is a need for more theology. Because of the three decades that I mentioned of petrodollars and developing one brand, it has been a bit dried up, a bit more rigid, and they need to be more confronted to uh, more studies. So how can we encourage Islamic studies in Europe would be a good idea. But I have to say, it is not the job of government to be uh, involved in any way in uh, theological debate. They don't have the expertise, they don't have the appetite, and they don't have the legal competence to do so. In most of our constitution, the state and the church are completely separated. 
Does that not have to be indeed across Europe in terms of promoting this diversity of interpretation coupled with a challenging of some of the more political ideology behind elements of Islamism, which reject Western values? Do you believe that those narratives need to be tackled head on or can be somehow countered by simply promoting better theological understanding of Islam? Both. I think when the content is really at odds with our values, it has to be removed. We have this discussion on the internet. I have started this conversation with the Saudi authorities on how can we reduce the huge volume of, I call it, legacy material. What has been produced during these three decades I referred to earlier, and which is problematic. When you Google Islam, the first answer you will get is a reference to a book called The Way of the Muslim. You have pages on bashing, beating, stoning non-Wahhabi Muslim, Shia Muslim, Christian, and Jews. This is not acceptable. It has to be removed. Even the Saudis, they do agree on that. They agree that we have that conversation. How can we reduce access to that publication, books printed in Saudi Arabia, content on internet, preach on internet? We have to challenge that because it's not in line with the values uh, prevailing in Europe. One of the priorities for the counter-extremism project has been very much aligned with one of the priorities for the European institutions in the last few years, which is trying to tackle the proliferation of terrorist content online. And this links to the point that you've just been discussing, because much of the spread of some of these radical extremist ideas has occurred via the internet, via chat rooms, social media platforms, etc. And the EU has been trying to put in place a legislative framework which would eradicate terrorist content online. This is something that you've been quite outspoken on. Are you optimistic now that we will see a comprehensive regulation to tackle terrorist content online? And do you think it needs to go further than what has been proposed and negotiated between the three institutions in Brussels? The answer is yes, not just on terrorist content online, but more widely on hate speech, which is not as such terrorist content, but it's racism, anti-Semitism and so on, and harmful content. Harmful content is not necessarily illegal, but uh, creates a sort of environment which may lead to racism and to uh, terrorism as well. We have been pretty active talking to the internet companies, but at some stage we reached the conclusions that we had to move to a more regulatory response, the draft regulation on the removal of terrorist content online. This is a good first step. How can we get the removal within one hour of a terrorist content? and have a removal order which can be implemented cross-border. But it's not enough. We need to, I think, revisit the liability regime of the internet companies. My plea is to have strict liability uh, put on the companies, so remove the mere conduit principle which uh, prevail under the e-commerce directive for the amplification of illegal content. Because it's one thing to remove within one hour, but uh, before it be removed, it very often is amplified by algorithms developed by the large platform. And I'm issuing a, a paper on algorithm uh, amplification, which is uh, very worrying. For a business uh, reason, companies like Facebook and YouTube have designed algorithms in a way to hook users as long as possible on their platform, because that's part of their business model. They can build advertisement. 
they make a lot of money because of that. And most of the time, what they amplify through the algorithm is not the average, I would say, boring content. It's more the borderline content, what becomes illegal. Not only uh, amplify the illegal content just before it be removed, so make the life of uh, those who have to remove a lot more difficult, but it amplify hate speech, disinformation, and harmful content. And so I hope the DCA will foresee a liability for amplification and a duty of care put on a company for the way they remove from the platform the hate speech and the harmful content with uh, quite high financial sanctions, impose a full transparency of the algorithm, having an oversight mechanism. I would like to see an EU agency to monitor the way the uh, different platforms abide by these new obligations. That would be, for me, the next step. That's a very interesting perspective on the scope and potential for the Digital Services Act. I guess it will be negotiated over several years because it is so sensitive. And I think we know from the very limited scope of the terrorist content file that large tech and many other organizations will mobilize to resist that type of regulation. Do you think it's an opportunity for Europe to lead the world in a sense? Because we know these discussions are happening in the United States, but most of these large tech companies are American, so it makes it more difficult. You also have constitutional restrictions there relating to freedom of speech, which are not quite so rigorous in Europe. The GDPR regulation, the data protection regulation was in a way a standard set by the EU for the rest of the world. Do you think the same can happen here with the Digital Services Act when it comes to liability and responsibility of these companies? I hope. We'll see. As you said, many of them are American companies. So uh, is it smart to start with that sort of uh, aggressive uh, legislation, which will upset the Silicon Valley? Maybe one element. The second one is the classical reference to free speech. As you said, we will curb free speech. I don't buy this argument because it's not true that there is free speech. And what I referred to earlier, the uh, algorithm amplification, is just the uh, illustration that there is no free speech. My voice has not the same weight than other voices because they are amplified by these companies. And so this is what I hope will, will be achieved by both the Digital Service Act and the Digital Market Act is a level playing field. We have to police the market because it is there is no uh, level playing field. There is an unfair competition between President Trump's voice and my voice. There is no equal free speech. His voice has a lot more impact. It's a lot more amplified. So if we want to ensure more free speech, we need to define rules and reduce the impact of algorithm amplification. I think people have not realized that. So it's a bit easy to say, hey, free speech, First Amendment. No, no, it does not uh, play uh, fairly. Uh, big lobbying, yes, uh, we know. We've seen uh, one uh, internal memo uh, from Google League describing how much they hate that sort of legislation. But I think if they follow Commissioner Breton, who seems to be uh, on the hard line, that the commission is brave enough, and I hope it will be, not sensitive about the element that I just mentioned, we can set the standard worldwide, like we did for GDPR. Connect a question, which is really about capacity, and you did mention belief in the need for a new agency. The Internet Referral Unit is already under a huge strain with the volume of work that's likely to increase I'm assuming that the inference here is that the Internet Referral Unit would not be the 
the entity to to manage this volume of additional responsibility uh, in relation to digital services act i think it should be a, a new agency because of the the systemic nature the, the size of these companies you need an, an eu body uh, because you need to pull expertise as well but for the international fair you need to write they need to be reinforced a lot on the jihadi side but a lot more on the right wing violent extremist side as well because there you need expertise i'm the one behind this idea to create an internet refer unit at europol because i was just inspired by the experience of scotland yard i was impressed at the time by what i heard many years ago that when content was flagged by the internet refer unit of scotland yard in average google was removing the content in 93% of the time when it's you and i as users it was only in average 33% of the time why this difference because the people are trained to spot precisely to make a difference between what falls under free speech but what is illegal has to be removed we need to have experts on fine right uh, these people are pretty smart they use a lot of coded language they use figures like combat 18 the one stands for a like adolf and eight for age like hitler we need people trained to do that job and so uh, i hope Europol will get reinforced the internet referral unit. In relation to encryption, we certainly see it in CEP. These companies are hiding behind encryption to effectively allow communication between far right or extremist organizations, individuals involved in planning terrorist attacks. Do you think that that can be tackled by way of legislation and how far do we need to go to give law enforcement agencies the ability to get behind that encryption? This issue is as sensitive as the one on Islam. I do believe that we need to adopt a new legislation. Ideally, the DSA would be a convenient vehicle to do so. It won't happen. And we need on top of it a lot more explanation, another narrative. Because as soon as you raise the need for the security service and for the law enforcement agency just to get access to content in the context of a lawful interception, Uh, people criticize you wanting to get access to old uh, data and we are drifting towards an US model of total surveillance this is not true i fail to understand why you can intercept a text message but you cannot intercept a, a whatsapp message with the same content tell me why what is the logic but the difference is that whatsapp is developing end to end encryption and not text messages by telecom operators and we see that the internet companies the big platform are developing more and more at all stage from the mobile phone up to the search engine so that it will be no longer possible to identify who is behind an ip address putting pedopornographic pictures and so on is it that we want not to identify the pedophiles or the criminals or the terrorists using internet i think people don't want this so we need to explain better it's not just because we want to spy on everyone and and set up a total surveillance society it's just that we should keep doing what we were allowed to do before and in the narrative i think we need to be very clear we want to have a strong encryption and we want to have more encryption why because it protect our privacy it protect human right activists and journalists in dictatorship and we will need that more and more in the 5g environment in which all the object will be connected or cars will be connected i don't want the chinese to interfere with my car which will be connected we want to have strong encryption but not to the extent that the law enforcement agencies will go dark 
And is it an issue for the Americans? We all believe that the NSA has such big computers that they can crack anything. There is no forms of encryption which can resist the big computers. I see the Americans, even the Americans, being uh, worried by the development of end-to-end encryption. I see recently the Five Eyes plus Japan made a strong statement to ask really seriously to the internet company to find a solution. And that's why my pose is a bit simplistic. When it's permitted by law and authorized by a judge, you have to provide us with unencrypted, readable content, and you have to decide the way you do it, you achieve it, because you are the one which develops the encryption keys in the first place. In a sense, what you're proposing is an old-fashioned judicial order for search and seize, which uh, is not controversial in any jurisdiction, but for some reason it becomes controversial when it's on the internet. Perhaps this is a way in which we can see Europe and the United States cooperating over the coming months and years. On a final note, because we are sort of talking about global challenges, you, in your speech to the UN Virtual Counterterrorism Conference, some months ago, you spoke about the importance of effective multilateral cooperation. I think given the nature of the extremist and terrorist threat, it doesn't know borders or boundaries. That seems more important than ever. Are you optimistic about the potential now for greater international cooperation? And where do you see the opportunities to progress that? Well, we all hope that the elected president Biden reinvest into multilateralism like we do. That will help a lot because they have a lot of leverage and means. And in this context, we favor the UN. We think the UN has recently developed the tools. They assess the needs in all the member states. That's done by a body called CTED. And there is a new office under the Secretary General trying to provide the members of the UN with the necessary support to just address the gaps and improve their response. And EU-US strong support of that process, I think, will achieve a lot. If we manage to coordinate and leverage sufficiently all the UN, the members of the UN family, as they call it, UNESCO, the Vienna agencies, and so on, with the money that the Europe can provide and the political steer that the Americans can, can bring, I think we can achieve a, a lot of progress. And, and just last point, I used to say uh, to the question, are we winning? Uh, my answer is... It depends. The threat remains, unfortunately, pretty high. It has morphed, but we have reduced our vulnerabilities significantly. And the more we can reduce our vulnerabilities, the better, because the threat will keep evolving, I'm afraid. And we haven't uh, touched upon the new uh, technological development. What we have seen is low-tech forms of attack, people using a knife, a car, and so on. But I think it will not remain forever. One day, unfortunately, there might be a terrorist attack, which are no longer low-tech. And so we have to invest a lot more and be a lot more forward-looking and anticipate and assess the new risks. Mm -hmm. And I think the Commission will do that progressively. Is there anything sort of different in the Commission strategy? What I like a lot is the emphasis on foresight Mm -hmm. and forward-looking and invest just to get a, a better sense of looming And it's really addressing all the issues linked to uh, the new tech, investing a lot on prevent, the vulnerabilities of critical infrastructure. Uh, I think most of the proposals are really going in the right direction. 
Well, on that positive note, I think we will draw our discussion to a close. Thank you for such wide-ranging uh, perspective on all aspects of the EU's approach to counterterrorism and counter-extremism. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today, Jill. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website.